Welcome to Rethinking Wellness, a podcast exploring the diet culture, disinformation, dubious diagnoses, and disordered eating that are so pervasive in contemporary wellness culture, and how to avoid falling into these traps so that you can find your own true well-being. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, journalist, and author of the books Anti-Diet, which is available now, and The Wellness Trap, which comes out on April 25th. You can learn more and pre-order the book at christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap. That's christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap. Welcome to the very first episode of Rethinking Wellness. I'm so happy you're here, whether you're joining me from my first podcast, Food Psych, of which this show is something of a spinoff, or whether you're new to my podcasting work or my work in general. However you've come to be here, I can't wait to share today's interview with you and many more in the weeks and months to come. In this first episode, I'm talking with fitness and wellness historian Natalia melman Petrozella. We talk about her new book, Fit Nation, the historical shifts that made fitness go from being viewed as a narcissistic practice to being seen as a good thing across the political spectrum, why so many people are disillusioned with our medical system and looking for answers and validation in the alternative medicine space, how people can be critical consumers of online wellness content, and lots more. Just a content warning for this one that it includes discussions of fitness and the food environment, so please take care of yourself when listening. Before the interview, a few quick announcements. This podcast is brought to you by my upcoming book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is available for pre-order now. The book explores a lot of what we're going to address on this podcast, including the connections between diet culture and wellness culture, how the wellness space became a hotbed of scams, misinformation, and conspiracy theories, why many popular alternative medicine diagnoses are misleading and harmful, and what we can do instead to create a society that promotes true well-being for all its people. Just go to christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap to learn more and pre-order the book for its April 25th release. That's christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap. And once you've pre-ordered, you can get a special bonus Q&A and webinar with me by uploading your proof of purchase at christyharrison.com slash book bonus. If you like this show and want to help support it, I'd be so grateful if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it. You can do that wherever you're listening to this, and you can also get it as a newsletter in your inbox every other week, where you can either listen to the audio directly from the email, or read a full transcript, or both. Subscribe to that at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Now, without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Natalia Melman-Petrozella. Natalia, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be talking with you again. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you. So the the genesis of this conversation and kind of of this podcast is that when I was interviewing people for my new book, The Wellness Trap, I kept having these conversations that I wished I could release just the whole interview of and you know have it be a podcast. And you were one of those conversations. I loved everything we talked about and wished I could have used it all in the book and just wasn't able to. So I'm hoping to sort of recreate that in part here and also talk about your new book, which is out now, Fit Nation. So we have a lot to discuss. We do. And I should say that I've been a listener of your podcast for a while and your voice transports me back to when I was living in Paris and walking through the streets listening oh. to you. So it's much more romantic than my uh, current office situation. But yes, I'm excited <laughs> to talk to you again, too. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I lived in Paris when uh, my junior year of college and I miss it so much. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, so the first thing I would love to talk with you about today is just kind of your own relationship with wellness culture, you know, how your own work intersects with your personal relationship with with wellness and with fitness. 
Yeah. So first, you know, what is my work? I mean, I think I'm talking to you mostly as a historian. I have this book about the history of fitness culture, how fitness became wellness. And I've been a kind of, you know, critical observer and scholar of wellness culture in America. And my training is as a historian. I'm a history professor. But the way that I came to this work, to this work was really being a kind of passionate but somewhat skeptical consumer and participant in wellness culture. And I came to write this book, Fit Nation, and to kind of spend the better part of the last decade thinking critically about wellness culture because I was really not an athlete at all growing up, but then I found the gym and fitness culture in the night, like late mid 1990s. And once I walked in, honestly, to like a step aerobics class and found that kind of movement environment, I was totally hooked. I felt great in my body. I was just like wanted to be in this all the time. That being said, as I developed my kind of scholarly and critical thinking tools and really became a feminist, I realized that thing, this thing that I loved so much was also like deeply problematic. And so that's a very sort of quick synopsis of the kind of, you know, life events, but also mindset that brought me to be like, hey, I really want to think deeply about this world of wellness, which is in many ways very empowering and, you know, very powerful in our lives in good and bad ways, but I think it's like not so well understood. And so that's kind of how I got here today. Yeah, I feel like that resonates so much with me and probably with many of our listeners too, that this thing that you loved and that brought you so much was also deeply problematic. And for me, it was it was deeply problematic in terms of like creating disordered eating and a really orthorexic relationship with fitness and food and all the things. But I think for for everyone, there's probably some problematic elements, even if it doesn't go to that degree. Absolutely. And I should say some of them were personal. Like, you know, when I discovered the gym in high school, I found myself like thinking I was quote unquote, like being good by skipping a meal to exercise more. And that obviously can turn into something really damaging. Luckily for me, it didn't go too far in that direction. But I already kind of felt that, that would, there was that disconnect personally of this thing that our society like only sees as positive in most ways that can become kind of obsessive. But then also like as I kind of grew up um, and was in graduate school and still very much working out, working at gyms, got certified as an instructor, a lot of the language, not only only around body image, and you know, you have to lose weight, you have to earn this, um, you know, earn your dessert and all of that kind of moralizing, but also just like the total individualism of it all, right? Like all that's standing between you and the body you want is your willpower. Like that whole sense of like your body and your health is only in your hands. On the one hand, I felt it was very empowering because yeah, it's much easier to do that than to like solve climate change or any of these bigger, more thornier issues. On the other hand, come on, I like knew enough from reading some books and being a citizen of the world to realize there's so much more than individual will standing in the way of any person and their goals. And so I was, you know, grappling with that and I, and I still do. Mm-hmm. And you're still a fitness instructor, right? You still do that on the side? Yeah. So the workout that I teach is this wonderful program called Intensati, and it combines affirmations and like really high energy movements. I got certified like back when I was in grad school in 2007, taught at Equinox for many years. And then I actually stopped for a while when the brand left Equinox because I'm a professor, I have two kids, et cetera. But recently, very sadly, earlier this year, um, the founder of this program, Patricia Moreno, a wonderful teacher and friend of mine, died very early cancer. And so now I'm teaching again, intermittently doing kind of residencies. But if you're interested in that, it's easy to find me on social media. Yeah, that's great. I'm so curious about um, how you came to realize the sort of individualistic pursuit of wellness was problematic and the, and the history of that, right? The roots of that in American culture. Yeah. So, okay. One of the things that is really interesting or weird about my positionality in this whole conversation is that even though I live in the world we all live in where kind of the pursuit of wellness and health and fitness and weight loss and, you know, physical beauty and all that is pretty much uncritically celebrated. My scholarly and intellectual development has happened 
almost entirely in a field that actually looks at kind of structural forces as like the driving force in society. So this is a little in the weeds, but bear (laughs) with me. I think it is relevant here. So like, I think a lot of people have heard about like the great man theory of history, right? That like, there's like these individual heroes and they're the reasons that like historical progress happens. I came into the field of studying history in graduate school and even as an undergrad when there was so much pushback to that. And right, good pushback. And the pushback to that was no, it's not individuals and these like hero figures we should lo- be looking at. It's actually big structural forces that actually shape how we live and how social change does or does not happen and how solutions can come to to be. So in terms of like wellness culture, I mean, a big thing people were talking about when I started paying attention to this stuff was around like food justice and nutrition, right? And historically, if we look at, or even today, if we look at the way that inequality and kind of nutrition related illnesses are talked about it's they're often talked about as a kind of failure of individual behavior and individual choice right well these people don't care about health or they don't want to eat good food or sorry the kids throw out the greens on their lunch plate and we tend to frame that i know i'm preaching in the choir here but <laughs> we tend to frame that as an individual choice well the scholars, et cetera, that I was like immersed in were saying like, no, let's look at the federal subsidies for corn. Let's look at the rise of the fast food industry. Let's look at which foods are affordable, right? Beyond these kind of individualistic pieces. So that conversation around food was happening already when I was in grad school and literally about everything else. Like I would have failed if I had written a paper that like centered an individual and their decisions as like a primary mover in history. So that is relevant because then when I'm in the gym, And I'm hearing and seeing all of this talk and like all of this, you know, hashtag Fitzbo about like, all you need is a pair of sneakers and some willpower. And I like, yeah, and that stuff is everywhere, right? And we all have the same 24 hours in the day as, you know, Beyonce. No, we don't because she has like a whole staff, right? And so my brain was already primed to really have my hackles up when I heard that kind of like highly individualistic motivational thinking. Mm, That's really interesting. And then looking at the history, too, it seems like American individualism really started to to intertwine with thinking about fitness, as you talk about in the book, maybe around the 1800s. I'm not sure. I'm curious to hear that story. Yeah, um, absolutely. So fitness as this kind of unqualified virtue, that really doesn't exist in American society in a mainstream way until relatively recently, like the 1960s, 70s, it's happening. But you're absolutely right that going back to people who were kind of boosters of fitness in the 1800s or in the early part of the 20th century, they are connecting exercise and to a certain extent, like, you know, uh, control of food to discipline, right? This is discipline of the flesh. Like it's no accident that there's a whole movement called muscular Christianity. And much of that uh, ethos there was saying that the external appearance of your body and how you care for and discipline your body through exercise and other means, that is a sign of salvation. And it's funny because that ethos and those folks were speaking in very explicitly Christian terms, but that's exactly the ideology that's just why much more widespread and kind of secularized today. So that's that's happening in the 1800s, but it's still like sort of niche. And one of the things that um, I do in the book, like, because I really, I don't, I think it's hard for contemporary people to kind of appreciate this, is I try to show how weird and almost subversive it was to work out. And so you have people who are kind of enthusiasts for strength training, really like having to lay it on so thick to say like, no, 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 like disciplining and caring for your body through exercise. This is not like manual labor that immigrants and Black people do. This is about civilization. This is about channeling and disciplining your strength to achieve some kind of higher state. And they were doing that because they had to say that so explicitly because it was seen as kind of shady or sketchy or seedy for men 
to like be so into their bodies. Like that must mean that you are not straight. That must mean there's something wrong with you. And for women, it was seen as inappropriate too, because why are you trying to build strength? Like, don't you know that could, you know, harm your fertility? Don't you know that could cultivate unladies-like sensibilities, like being too individualistic or competitive? So try to kind of set up both exactly what you're saying, that there were these early exercise enthusiasts who tied it to individual virtue, but there really was also this kind of dominant sense that exercise was kind of seedy. It was a waste of time. It could even harm your body. And also the province of narcissists, right? I, you mentioned that in the book yes. as well, that like it's, it was a, seen as a very narcissistic pursuit to be exercising. And yeah, I think that's so interesting in light of how it's seen today is now sort of this matter of, you know, personal responsibility, but also in a way like responsibility to others. You know, I think this is maybe more common in places like that have nationalized medicine, like the UK or something, where it's like you owe it to your fellow countrymen to exercise because otherwise you're a drain on the NHS or something. But even in the US, there's there's some of that, you know, that you're like harming society or something by not engaging in quote unquote healthy lifestyle. No, that's totally right. And on your first point about narcissism, that plays out differently for men and women in kind of interesting ways. Like for men, and men contend with this well into the 1970s. Even today, I honestly see this in some some environments where men are not as frequently seen, like in some boutique fitness environments. The idea that a man who's so into like his appearance and through working out or certain forms of working out that like he's inherently suspicious. Women, interestingly, sometimes get mocked for that stuff, especially like expensive workouts or ones that seem to have like a lot of sort of bells and whistles. But because we've always sort of accepted that, of course, women should spend time and money on looking pretty to the extent that exercise is tied not to building strength or to building community or all these other great things that can happen, but to losing weight or getting prettier skin or being attractive to men, it actually becomes much more palatable for women to exercise. That's so interesting. And it makes me think of something you mentioned in the book, too, about how like in the 1970s and 80s, I think like feminists like Gloria Steinem were extolling the virtues of exercise and talking about exercise as this like feminist act. And that seems to sort of fly in the face of this idea that women shouldn't be too strong because it will take away from their prettiness and their ability to be good mothers or whatever it is, be fertile. But then also, as you trace in the book, there's this interesting sort of individualism that comes into play on the left as well, right? Where it it becomes this pursuit of individual fitness becomes sort of tied up with projects on the left as well as on the right and makes this kind of a universal, uh, the pursuit of fitness, like this ideal across the political spectrum. Yeah. And thank you for reading so closely. <laughs> this is the book right? when we're talking, it's not out yet. I'm like, oh my God, like these smart people are actually reading my words. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So to kind of elaborate on that a little bit. So how did we get from that we that moment when exercise was like weird and suspicious to where we are today? Yeah, you 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 hit it on the head, right? And so the argument that I make is that in the middle of the 20th century, starting with some federal projects that connect being fit to like civic duty, a little bit of what you were talking about before you owe it to other people. The mentality was not so much you owe it to other people, but more you owe it to your country. So there was this big move to, and it was a very splashy PR campaign, not so much investment in infrastructure, but this big move to kind of boost up physical education programs, public recreation. There was this whole campaign that said like, no one gets cut from the squad of fitness. Like this is not like sports. Everybody should be fit because of the Cold War gets hot, you're going to have a responsibility to go fight. And JFK is like the perfect influencer for this because he takes Eisenhower, who came before him, he takes his kind of like military preparedness thing and then like makes it like sexy and glamorous and fun because he's JFK. And so, you know, he gets reamed for this by his opponents who talk about like JFK's silly fits of fitness, but he does a really good job of saying this is not just about preparing male soldiers. This is about fun and being with your family and like challenging each other to like healthy hikes and all the rest. But so that's like lays the foundation for like fitness as a civic commitment. But then, yeah, in the 60s and 70s, you have this like wild intellectual shift that happens where 
the notions that I think actually underpin modern wellness kind of come together. And those are two ideas, really. And one is that mind and body are connected, and that you can't be a kind of fully actualized self, unless you're working on your body, that kind of gets widespread traction. And two, that it is up to an individual to kind of take control and steer that process of achieving wellness or achieving health. That set of ideas is very attractive across the political spectrum. So on the left, you have people who've been marginalized by medical communities, whether they're feminists, whether they're people of color who are like, yes, I want to be trusted to have agency over my body and my health. I'm sick of these dudes in white coats telling me I'm sick or I don't feel pain or that this is what I should put in my body or my body's not good enough. And that's very, very empowering. On the right, this fits in perfectly with all of this language of personal responsibility that is at the heart of kind of conservative and libertarian ideology. And so, you know, I'm a, a historian of ideas to a certain extent. And so that's like an interesting shift I saw. But what's so cool is to see how it plays out literally on the ground. Like with something like jogging, you both have these like hippie environmentalists, like back to the land joggers. You have women who are feminists who are like claiming their right to run long distances. And then you also have like conservative Christian campuses celebrating these cardio and aerobics programs and talking about how Jesus wants you saved body and mind. And it's such a convergent discourse. And I think really accounts for why this stuff remains so popular across the spectrum, like fitness, wellness is malleable to many different ideologies. There's so much there that I want to unpack, like this shift that happens in the 60s and 70s, because we talked about that for my book too, right? The idea that wellness culture was sort of born out of that shift in many ways, and that people seeking out like alternative medicine, alternative points of view about health and well-being kind of came out of that in some ways, you know, the the disillusionment that so many people were feeling, which people are still feeling today, and I think has driven wellness culture to become such big business, right? And, And alternative medicine to become such big business, because justifiably, I think many people feel abandoned or ignored or unserved by the medical system in many ways, especially marginalized people, people of color, women, LGBTQ people, all kinds of folks don't feel really served by the medical system and and feel increasingly like the alternatives might be more helpful and and that self-care is perhaps an alternative to that. I think that's totally right. And, you know, I just went to visit a class yesterday that is talking about wellness culture. And one of the things I think is really hard, and I don't have the answer to it, is that everything that you just said is right, that this kind of resistance to authority and skepticism of expertise comes out of real pain and real exclusion and marginalization. And uh, and it comes from a culture that often has like uncritically elevated certain forms of expertise over others, right? In a way that can be really damaging. And I like appreciate that. On the other hand, and we are seeing this play out right now in the wellness world around like COVID response, what can sometimes feel like a nice compromise of how we resolve that, which is like, well, everybody can just define wellness for themselves. Like, yes, I agree with that. But then I'm so troubled to see, you know, among many prominent wellness influencers that that gets kind of distorted into, you know, the government's lying to you, like you, they might tell you to take this vaccine, but I actually believe in this tincture over here, or, you know, in a less controversial mode, the kind of overall unquestioned authority of the personal journey as like as legitimate as like the peer-reviewed study. And I have a really hard time saying like who to trust when my students ask me, because I'm like, no, one person who I don't know, cured themselves of a a chronic illness or lost weight or like has great skin and wants to share their journey. I'm not telling you that's not valid, but I also in the sort of hierarchy of evidence and authority cannot say that that is the same validity as a peer reviewed, you know, set a double blind study, even though I know that the medical institutions and the medical profession and pharma and all the rest are hardly 
actors without checkered pasts and presence. So it's super, super hard to know how to navigate that. And I think the wellness industry culture is like, and all of our culture is honestly in a little bit of crisis because of that. Agreed completely. It's it. I mean, that was one thing I kept thinking about when I was writing the book and was so troubled by as well. Like, how do you know who to trust? How do you discern? Right. How do you discern what's useful and what's not? And, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about the placebo effect and kind of the family of placebo effects that, you know, are related effects in wellness spaces and how how powerful that is, right? How powerful the mind-body connection is and the way that, you know, taking something maybe when you're at the height of sort of a natural history of disease where there's ebbs and flows and, you know, oftentimes people end up seeking out alternative medicine or really any kind of medicine or care at the height of one of those ebbs, you know, and then the natural history of disease ends up that, you know, they, they go into a, a dip and the symptoms are mitigated kind of naturally with with the ebb and flow of the disease. And I have multiple chronic illnesses that very much have cycles like that. And so, the, you know, when reaching for an alternative or a, a, a cure, a purported cure at the height of the disease, it's going to very much look like, you know, something something works, whatever you take at the at that height, at that peak works because you end up getting better on your own right but then yeah what how do we discern like what really has an effect over and above that you know that's where i think peer-reviewed randomized controlled double blind placebo controlled you know studies come in but those can be really problematic too you know there's a really interesting book called um, snake oil science that goes into the issues with with alternative medicine research and why it's almost impossible to do really good studies on a lot of alternative medicine approaches. So, you know, I think it can be really confusing for people who don't know how to, you know, the average consumer, right? Right. And yet, and not even the average consumer. I mean, you and I think about this stuff like for a living <laughs> and it's really hard, right, right? right? And I think that like the go-to, like, you know, whatever feels right for you, that is not really enough right now, but it's not all we've got, but it's hard to give sort of more conclusive evidence than that. And yeah, your point about like the natural ebbs and flows of, of certain conditions, it just made me sort of laugh. I was like almost 41 weeks pregnant with my second child. And I, I had a very sort of like Western, wonderful OB, but, you know, very much in Western medicine. And I was like, oh my God, you know, get this baby out of me already. And I was like, what do you think about me going and doing some like aggressive acupuncture? And she's like, okay, go for it. And she's, and I was like, do you think it's going to work? And she's like, listen, you're like 41 weeks pregnant. This baby's going to come out in the next couple of days. If you go do acupuncture now, you know, maybe you can like tie that causal effect or it's just because it's time for the baby to be born, you know? And I thought that was kind of interesting and not every situation obviously fits into that, but I do. One of the things I try to say when I'm talking about this is like the notion of like complementary techniques or complementary cures. Like, who am I to say acupuncture didn't work or didn't hasten it or that another complementary and alternative intervention doesn't work? I do not have the hubris to say that. But, you know, I do think scientific expertise counts for something as imperfect as it is, but it is hard. And we're in a tough moment, I think, especially with the pandemic and public health, um, public health system on that point. Right. And the ways that a lot of public health institutions have have had very big missteps and, and failings and admittedly so, right? The CDC has done its own kind of internal investigation and found that like, yeah, we really screwed up in terms of communication and some of the guidance to people and stuff like that. And, and, you know, so it's, it's, it definitely feels like it's enough to make a lot of people lose trust. But then I think there's this interesting, I know we touched on this in our interview for the book a little bit too, like the way, the role that the internet plays and social media plays in sort of fostering that, right? There's maybe a little spark of doubt for a lot of people or a, a sense of, you know, justified skepticism that many people have when they see kind of issues like the CDC's pandemic response being somewhat botched in some ways or the Oxycontin scandal or things like that, right? Where the the medical establishment really is has messed up and, and Tuskegee experiment, you know, these things that are just like really, really problematic and create a health, you know, a justified skepticism in people. But then the internet and social media and, and these 
in some cases, bad actors, dis- disinformation purveyors kind of jump on that and, you know, fan this flame of skepticism into a raging fire that wants to burn down everything about the established medical system and make you mistrust and have, you know, this conspiracist sort of, sort of thinking toward everything in the system. And then a, a sort of attendant openness to these really wild things that maybe you would be skeptical about otherwise if you hadn't had, you know, the sort of faith in mainstream institutions and science just completely burned down by the social media environment that we're in. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Um, And I think that, um, you know, I was talking before about that kind of training that I came up in that emphasized kind of structural critique and institutional critique. And in some ways, I think what you're describing is like an assault from what from a sensibility that generally exists on the right, right? It's like an attack on, you know, COVID is a hoax. This is like Biden's pandemic, et cetera. But I think that that kind of attack on institutions, whether it's the medical profession or the CDC, is helped along in a big way from decades of scholars and a kind of progressive tradition, which has been very critical of institutions for some really good ways, but for some really good reasons. But those two things kind of come together. And um, I actually, there, I mean, the pandemic's so weird and, and it's like brought out so much weirdness in our culture. But I was really surprised when the vaccines first came out, which is a great moment. I mean, I, I, I am vaccinated and I'm like very happy about that. But um, when the vaccines came out and all of these kind of like lefty progressive people who are people I agree with on a lot of things were like wearing these t-shirts like House of Pfizer, oh, we're Moder- team Moderna. And I'm like, are you guys really like pharma shills right now? Like what happened to you? Like, it's just so weird, right? I'm like, you're the people who have been crafting really thoughtful critiques about big pharma and like, you know, the medical industrial complex or whatever. And like, great. This vaccine seems like a good thing. I trust it and everything. But like, this is not what I would expect, you know? Right. The sort of like uncritical embrace of, I mean, and again, I'm also vaccinated, boosted twice, you know, like uh, love it, really grateful for it. My daughter's vaccinated, you know, but same, same, yeah. all the caveats, <laughs> yeah. all the caveats. And, and I think, yeah, it's been just truly incredible the speed with which these companies were able to develop vaccines that are safe and effective and, you know, helping blunt the pandemic. But yeah, like the pharmaceutical industry certainly has its own issues. And, you know, I think, as I talk about in the book, the supplement industry has in some ways even more issues because it's very barely regulated, at least with pharmaceuticals. You have, you know, strict regulation and the necessity to prove safety and efficacy before something goes to market. Not that that's, again, Oxycontin scandal is sort of a big example of how that failed, right, in one case, but also or how that could potentially fail. But, you know, I think in most cases, the system works well for establishing safety and efficacy of drugs before they go to market. Whereas with the supplement industry, you have none of that, right? You don't have to, there's no, (laughs) no necessity of establishing safety and efficacy before going to market. There's a lot of adulteration that happens in the supplement industry that isn't found sometimes for years. But the pharmaceutical industry certainly has its own problems. But yeah, the pandemic has just been so has sort of upended a lot of the usual lines of because also you see people really embracing uncritically embracing supplements and going like the full I've even seen people and this is, again, I think somewhat on the left and on the right, actually, where they're embracing all other kinds of vaccines, but the COVID vaccine somehow is bad or wrong and, you know, developed too quickly and blah, blah, blah. And so they're going, you know, full alternative medicine on the pandemic, which is just so troubling. I have seen that too. Yeah, that we could probably stay on the pandemic forever. The one other pandemic piece that has put me a little bit maybe at, at odds is maybe either not strong enough or too strong of a word with like some of my usual like fellow travelers is like now at this stage in the pandemic, I've, and I'm keeping in mind, I'm in classrooms all day and I'm in classrooms that are still, even with vaccine booster requirements and until very recently, weekly PCR tests where we're a hundred percent masked. And I don't think this is okay. <laughs> I've been really vocal about the fact that like 
starting with my college students who aren't even getting the brunt of it because little kids have it worse in a lot of ways. They haven't seen each other's faces for four years. Like I have seniors saying to me, like, I just want to hear my professor talk like properly, not muffled. Like I want that kind of engagement of faces. And I feel in that environment, that's actually a totally legitimate position. And actually to this point of wellness, um, you know, I don't want your listeners to be like, what is this like COVID ramp thing that I signed up for in this episode? But I think from the perspective of broader wellness and like situating our health in social context, to me, that's the key piece here. Like, you know, it is debatable and it's not my experience to say whether like the cloth or surgical masks that most people are wearing in there are actually preventing uh, COVID transmission among 100% vaccinated people. Maybe they are, maybe they are not. But there's something broader in terms of our social health that I think is pretty clearly being lost. And so in that protected environment with our vaccines and our weekly testing, it seems like we should be able to see each other's faces. This is, I'm not saying you necessarily agree with me or or, or not, and we don't have to get into that. But I think one of the positive things about our wellness culture is that it does kind of at least position as an ideal, a kind of holistic set of a holistic definition of health, which incorporates like various things beyond just the absence of illness. And I think in some, and largely in educational institutions in certain regions, we've really lost that in a really unfortunate and I think surprising way. My, my students are, and my colleagues, and like everyone is kind of losing out when our only goal is preventing COVID transmission and not thinking about other health implications. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, and that makes me think too, like there's this piece that we talked about for my book and that is in your book about how wellness culture and fitness culture as well, embrace this like lofty ideal about holism as this ideal, right? Holism as the goal. And with fitness culture, it was with yoga. Yoga sort of drove that shift, right? Of thinking about enlightenment and exercise is more than just physical and vanity. It's this mind-body connection, right? But then in practice, the way that the sort of holistic ideal gets translated is not always so holistic, <laughs> curious to hear you talk about the history of that and how you see that playing out today as well. Totally. So I think first, just like taking it further back to that mid-century moment that we were talking about kind of post-World War II. So in the 50s and 60s, there are a lot of advances in biomedicine and there's a kind of general boost in American prosperity, not across the board. You still have a lot of inequality, but, you know, middle-class people can own a home. Like all of those 1950s images that you see did not apply to everybody, but they did reflect a kind of broader prosperity and and, uh, growth of a middle class, largely white middle class. Think of, in terms of bodily health, what we were coming out of. Two world wars, the depression, you know, something we don't always remember about World War One and Two is not only that lots of American soldiers died, many came back like disfigured, right? And with disabilities, same effects of the depression as well. You have advances in vaccines, polio gets eradicated, advances in biomedicine, greater access to medical care in those years after World War II. And you have the rise of, not the rise, the like more mainstreaming of the therapeutic profession. So all of that kind of converges in our culture to kind of raise the standard of like how people should expect to feel and live. And so there's this idea that now we don't need to worry about starving. We can like start thinking about what kinds of foods we put in our body and nutrition and seeing, you know, and understanding where they where they come from. We don't need to worry about being sent off to war quite yet. We can worry about heart health and like these kind of more elevated things. We, If you feel, you know, alienated or depressed or et cetera, there's a doctor for that because you deserve to be happy. And now some of the remediations were like pretty terrible, like all sorts of chemical interventions. A lot of the food that was considered healthy then was actually totally processed. So the solutions were not perfect, but there is this kind of like rise in stand, a standard of expectation around how to live that really takes hold in that period. That sort of is evolving and you have particularly in the 1960s and 70s counterculture that really is embracing kind of the pursuit of enlightenment, for lack of a better term. 
Some of that, ironically, is rejecting aspects of American prosperity. So you imagine like generationally, like a kid who grows up in the suburbs and is told to like jog daily around the block to protect their heart health. And they have like, you know, don't worry about lack of food and, and, and all the rest. The, uh, there's a whole bunch of kids that grew up like that who were like, ugh, this like suburban American Western ideal is very stultifying. It's inauthentic. I want to find real enlightenment. What's interesting is they're positioning that so-called real enlightenment in contrast to this inauthentic kind of mainstream suburbia, but they could only kind of have that level of expectation because of that prosperity, right? And that gets to some of the class dynamics. So then you have folks, and not all of them were sort of middle class and white, but getting into experimenting with, you know, so-called Eastern traditions, with rejecting kind of industrial food. You have the beginning of the organic food movement in this period. You have acupuncture, yoga, all of these kind of like bodily practices that are embraced by what is mostly like a counterculture. That's happening throughout the kind of 60s and 70s and is still seen as a little bit sort of like out there, I think, by by a lot of folks. Like there's this broadcast in 1979 um, on 60 Minutes where a very young Dan Rather is like, wellness, there's a word you don't hear every day. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. really? Because I hear it all the time now. And he goes out to this clinic and I think Marin and he interviews these folks who are saying things that today sound like totally run in the mill. Like, I just believe body and mind are connected. You know, I couldn't get help, relief from my elbow injury. And so I tried this like non-Western physician and now everyone thinks I'm crazy. Like things that now are really, really in the mainstream. And then at the same time, you have this burgeoning fitness culture, which is expanding as cardio, which was then called aerobics, be, like expands the definition of what's considered exercise beyond weightlifting and calisthenics. You have the kind of 80s aerobics thing going on, which is not connected to that counterculture, like at all. It's very like, hard driving, get skinny, dance party. Like it's, I think people describe having transcendent experiences in those classes, but it's not connected to like a broader social critique for sure or anything like that. It's an intense bodily experience. In the 1990s and then the 2000s, these really come together in mainstream yoga culture. And a lot of people who write about this write about it from the perspective of yoga, this like pure spiritual practice being corrupted by this outre fitness industry, which is all about thinner thighs and kind of like strips out the spirituality and just tries to make it into essentially like a weight loss that is not untrue in certain aspects, but what I look at in the book and I think is really, really important in understanding where we are today is the way that yoga culture actually shapes fitness culture in these years and that you have a workout industry, which is much bigger than the yoga industry ever was, a fitness industry, which was very like physical and about the body. And for that reason, still, even as many people were doing it, considered kind of narcissistic or kind of silly, it adopts and incorporates this kind of language of spirituality, enlightenment. It's not an instructor. It's my guru. This is about self-care. And that really serves to elevate exercise to a practice, you know, not just like a quick burn and then you get out of there. And I think that that integration is really important in understanding like why exercise has this like really virtuous cast today. And then more concretely, like the result of all of that and part of how this happened was things that are still with us today, like yoga fusion boot camp, power yoga, you know, all of these kind of like fusion formats, which I think are not only a result of the so-called corruption of yoga by fitness, but actually part of in some ways, a very willing embrace on both sides. Like there are, I read like every every uh, issue of Yoga Journal for like twenty years or something, and there there's a debate that's constantly happening. But there are plenty of people in the yoga community who are like, "This is great. We're finally shedding this like esoteric cast that we're like this weird spiritual thing. Like, great, we should be in every sports medicine clinic in America." And so there are people who are excited about that. But whether you think it's good or not. 
that influence went both ways and is so crucial to the way that today we invest working out as this like elevated, worthy pursuit that like, I don't think most people are sort of apologizing for anymore. Yeah, well, so non apologizing that you said in the book, like, (laughs) you're one of the first responses that people would have when you said you were writing a book about fitness culture is like, oh, I don't exercise enough. I'm so terrible. Like, yeah, that we now have taken this on as like a mantle of morality. Right. And that is such a relatively new expectation. It really, really is like, oh, I'm ready to work about fitness. Oh, I'm so bad. I didn't work out today or I should work out more. I'm like, I'm not the workout police. I don't know. You're a special kind of food expert, but I would imagine that like some folks who work in your field, like go out to dinner with friends and their friends like apologize for the food on their plate in front of them or like so bad. Like, I'm sure. It's part of the reason I started saying I'm an anti-diet dietitian is to try to foreground like the anti-diet part and say, I'm not going to judge you about what you're eating because otherwise, if I say I'm a dietitian, that's always the first response. Oh, I need to eat better. Or like, oh, I'm trying this new keto thing. What do you think of it? Or whatever. And it just gets into these really thorny conversations that I want to sort of not have to go down that road. Yeah, it does. I think pertinent to both that point that you make and also actually this thing we were just talking about, which is the kind of rise of this wellness talk around exercise and around diet too. In some ways, I mean, there are good aspects to that. I think it's great that we talk more about going to exercise or eating because that's how it makes me feel. And I go for other reasons that are not just about um, the physical transformation or for women often the shrinking of our bodies. I think that's really good. The thing that worries me, and I'm curious to know what you think, because I think this is probably almost even more apparent in the food world, is that I think there's been this kind of silencing among certain circles around like weight loss talk or kind of honest talk about how you feel about your body or how you want to look such that we have this new language, which dresses up in some ways, the same old sentiments, you know? And I think that I'm really divided on that. Like, you know, I have conversation, I'm turning 44 next week. I have two kids. So, you know, I look, I think my age and all that, but like I have some conversations with friends who are like me, are feminists, we're in our 40s, most of us are moms or whatever. And there's almost like this furtive thing if we feel like, oh, I'd like my pants to fit a little differently. And I don't want to, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but it is strange that when the dominant discourse in our culture for so long has actually been like, you should announce you want to lose weight and post your transformation pictures and all that. I still think that actually that feeling is very much with us, but at least in certain circles, you almost can't talk about it. And so it's harder to move past it. So I'm dealing with this too. So I'm not offering solutions, but I think it's a historical phenomenon that we'd be remiss to not kind of, you know, think worth thinking about. I agree. I think it's really interesting because, you know, in my perspective and, and, Definitely in the food world, I think there's a lot of this couching the desire to lose weight or the desire to eat a certain way for like perceived moral reasons like that you're you're bad if you eat quote unquote bad food or whatever. I think now with the rise of the anti-diet movement, and I've certainly been a part of that, and my first book is called Anti-Diet and stuff like I think with the rise of that, I think there are a lot of people now who think it's bad to express those sentiments and yet still want that. And so there's some market, there's a lot more marketing, I think now that is trying to co-opt the language of anti-diet culture and talk about, you know, the other reasons or the other benefits people might get from eating a certain way or from exercising a certain way or whatever it is. It's like coded language now. It's not shrink your body or lose X pounds or whatever, but it's like, you know, feel good in your skin or glow from within or something like that, you know? And what does that actually mean? You know, I think it still means the same thing, but it's it's got this like slightly loftier framing to it. Right. And it's so hard. I mean, I think we should never really be judging history of like purely like, is this better or is this worse? But it's, you know, 
it is like I read so many historical advertisements for different what they call used to call reducing um, products and different exercise products. And I mean, they literally there are records sold in the set in the 60s that are like, how to please your husband be whistle bait after 30. Like it's literally like that. I talk about it in the book, like it's so you should exercise so that you continue to merit male attention, like full stop, no questioning, end of story. It is very good that we have moved on past this, right? Mm -hmm. I think I like, it's great because those kind of ads, like there are little girls out there and boys, by the way, who saw that on their mom's shelf. And that was their first inclination that this is how they should think. And so I think it is a huge improvement that we've moved past that. But I think we haven't moved past the underlying emotions that like drive that kind of marketing, but we just have a more like dressed up way of talking about them. And I think that that's really hard. And I've been really kind of inspired and thought a lot about the, some of the pushback on the like, love your body language, right? That like, it kind of uh, wrapped up in that is like, oh, you don't love your body. Oh, you're not, you know, enlightened or like, what's wrong with you? Are you all this internalized depression? And I'm like, oh my God, that's, you don't need to feel guilty not only maybe for not looking like you want to, but then not loving how you look like that doesn't seem like progress. So I think that's really challenging. And the co-optation you're talking about, I think is right of this new language. And then maybe this is too far into the food industry for, for me to comment on, but I was following, you know, one of these internet controversies where there was a nutritionist who was um, kind of talking what sounded great, like a very like anti-diet line about there are no bad or good foods. And it turned out she was like paid by some like chips or fast food company. And I'm like, oh, I, that to me undermines such important work in anti-diet culture because I don't think anyone, nutritionist or not, would say, that, you know, bags of chips are the same as eating fresh food, right? And that totally just, I don't know, it's just so, it's it's really hard. I feel like I'm saying that a lot in this interview because you're asking really good questions, but how to navigate this, all I tend to say is like, you know, not just do your own research, but like, think about how everything we're experiencing is constructed, right? And it's not every food or every workout is exactly of the same quality or will be the same effectiveness or is right for everyone, but also try and consult research in your making your decisions beyond that uncredentialed influencer who like looks pretty and has a lot of followers. And so it tells you to do things because her journey bore that out. And I think that, you know, as we're talking about sort of hierarchies of authority, the like, you know, there, there are very little checks on people getting online and issuing health advice and, um, yeah, something we got to look out for. Completely. And I mean, the do your own research thing is so interesting. We talked about that in our book interview, too, about how this phrase has become so loaded. And what does it even mean to do your own research? And with, you know, the anti-vax sort of take on do your own research, it's basically do your research in these particular ways and this particular, you know, look at these memes that have been curated for you by the algorithm that, you know, amplifies discord and moral outrage. And so it's going to drive you further and further down this anti-vax rabbit hole, because that's what drives engagement. Like, look at these, this is your research, you know, don't look at you know, the scientific studies and journals that have been published for decades and decades that, you know, that that's somehow invalid and that only this particular type of research is is the valid form of doing your research. No, absolutely. I think that's right. And I said, you know, as a historian, like, what do I do? I teach research methods. It's been very dizzying for me that do your own research has been weaponized, right? Because <laughs> um, now I feel like this is a conversation I have. I'm teaching a research seminar this semester. And we talk about that and this sort of like epistemological crisis that we're in when I, usually my answer would have just always been like, go to the primary sources, right? And now we have to have, I think, a more sophisticated conversation about that in part because of this weaponization of do your own research, but also just the sheer barrage of information that we have available to us. Even if you're going in, in a good faith way to do your own research, it's harder and harder, I think, to get something close to a 360 view of what's going on. And so what I tell them, and maybe this is just good life advice, even beyond writing a history thesis, is like, constantly like be humble in your knowledge. What am I not seeing? What are the blinders? Like what would someone not with my positionality think? And like that pushes me certainly in writing the book, but also just in making, you know, decisions about like how to live life, right. And how to be well to kind of 
reach for perspectives that may not be intuitive to mine, realize I probably don't have the whole picture. Um, and um, yeah, it is a form of doing your own research, but I think in a more good faith way than that, than that term is often used. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's really well said, and, and so valuable to think about humility as a as an aspect of this, because we see a lot of and again, you know, this has become my bugbear as I researched my book and looked at, you know, what are the drivers of mis and disinformation about wellness? How do we even, you know, define mis and disinformation, first of all, but then what has driven those to be so prominent in the wellness space and really seeing the role that social media and the algorithms have played in, in driving that, you know, like, I think, my own, you know, I talk about this in the book, like that my own discourse and rhetoric became more polarized and more black and white by virtue of the algorithms rewarding that, you know, just seeing what worked on social media and thinking, okay, like these more nuanced memes don't try- get as much traction, these ones that are much more black and white. And this wasn't even really a conscious decision, you know, it was just something that happened over the years, right? That the the stuff with fewer filler words and more concrete sort of black and white language tends to get more likes and more shares and more traction and more angry comments as well, right? And there's this notion of like, if you're provoking angry comments, or if you're creating controversy, then you're doing something right. And it's like, I'm not that kind of person, actually. I don't like creating controversy. That's not my personality. And so to feel at the center of that a lot of times has been just like very overwhelming and scary for me in some cases. And, you know, looking at the ways in which the platforms actually drove me to this sort of way of relating that maybe wasn't what I had intended or what I really stand for. And, you know, trying to figure out how to be more nuanced and thinking about these issues and step away from social media and, you know, not let that influence my writing or my speaking as much has been really helpful to me, I think. Um, and is an ongoing project, of course. I think that's such a good point. And you have a bigger social media following than I do, but I feel like I've noticed that in the same way. And that's also like, I don't step away from controversy, but like, I feel like if I have a brand, it's nuanced, right? <laughs> and so I am not my thoughts that I feel are most worth sharing or like could actually add something are not best articulated and like, can you believe it? Outraged tweet or et cetera, or some like, you know, on Instagram more some like precept or instruction on like how to live or how to feel, which I feel like do do really well um, in that way. And I've seen people, honestly, who I respect, I feel go sort of off the rails in this way. And I'm like, do you actually think this way? Or are you just like courting likes, you know? And I think that's kind of pathetic. And it's actually made me, um, I, it's in part, it's because I, I was done with this book. And so I have a little bit more writing space, but I have been writing a lot more like in real outlets in order to have a thousand words or 2000 words to actually make a point. And I feel like for me, that is, and I'm lucky to have that access, but like that is a more effective way to make a good contribution because I don't know. I mean, I tweet a lot and I share things on Instagram, but I find like on Instagram, I share very just like, hi, I'm doing this thing, come to this event, or like, here are my kids, or in stories, I'll share articles and stuff. But like on Twitter, I, I share things, but it's not the best place to kind of have a nuanced conversation in, in part because people are so out for blood. <laughs> oh, totally. It's so it's so hard. It's not a place for nuanced conversation at all, in my experience. And that, you know, I think the, the platform generates that too, because I definitely know people in real life who I'm like, you're not like that. And, and you're, offline persona, you know, this persona that you have online is like this heightened version of, you know, maybe you're a little bit edgy or something in real life, but you're like this edgelord on Twitter, or you're much more nuanced in conversation when we have time to like, really flesh out an idea. And then on social media, it's just very black and white. And I've also seen people sort of driven to the edge by, you know, driven kind of up a wall by this by the way that the algorithms push controversy and push people into sort of debates and and not even just debates, but flame wars with each other and getting so obsessed with kind of like the internet fight that they're in of the day and not being able to step away from it. And I've had little moments like that myself. I've never really like, I've certainly been sucked into like unwinnable debates and things like that. I've, I've tried to avoid anything majorly controversial, but still it's, it's happened and it's made me feel awful and 
you know, really impacted my mental health in a negative way. And I've started to feel like, okay, what's the common denominator here? Every time I open this app is <laughs> I start to feel this way, you know, and that is where I think this sort of like idea of a mind body connection and thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, well-being holistically really can come into play is like, how am I feeling in my body right now? How, what is this triggering for me? You know, and, and is this the best environment for me? Is this something maybe I could do well to step away from? Absolutely. I think if we read more books than tweets and had more in-person conversations than like faceless social media exchanges, we'd probably be in a much better place. Yes, yes. And it's hard. It's hard in this, you know, modern era, especially with COVID, right? Having disconnected so many of us from our in-person communities and for people still who are, you know, immunocompromised and things like that, having to still be really careful and avoid a lot of in-person interaction. And so online has become such a more important part of so many people's social lives. So I get why, you know, social media use kind of exploded around the pandemic. And yet I think it's really had so many negative impacts on us as well. I agree. And, you know, one other piece that I think exacerbates that, especially in the wellness industry, like certainly in fitness, I would say in food um, and in this uh, role of, which didn't exist like much 30 years ago, the life coach. (laughs) All of those things, I think, are really important to think about in terms of the rise of social media and some of its harms in that it's such an unregulated space, right? Like people can rise to have such influence there because all they need is their media savvy. And like I said before, their kind of like personal journey to impart advice. And I'm not saying that we should crack down with like, you need a credential to like tell people what you ate for breakfast or like, you know, how many pushups that you did today or whatever. I I think his credential over credentialing can be a real problem too and can actually shut out marginalized people as it has throughout all of history, especially women in the, in the care industries. But um, I do think we need to see those as interconnected phenomena. Like you would not have uh, wellness influencers for good and bad online having so much influence if we had a more rigorous kind of definition or credentialing or process of some sort for who could impart this advice. Such a great point. And yeah, I agree with the over-credentialing piece. It's really tricky and problematic. And, you know, and also I see so many people who do have credentials who are getting sucked into these really extreme versions of their views, uh, you know, online and in social media or views that they maybe wouldn't have even, you know, that didn't come from the credentialing process or the what they learned, but, you know, going and, you know, I mean, I, I didn't learn health at every size or intuitive eating in school either. So I, I get it. You know, I think we discover things and might find a niche that works for us um, after school and sort of beyond the credentialing process. And some of that is good. You know, I do think intuitive eating is really a, a wonderful practice. I still really stand by it. But I also think like because of that lack of regulation, there really there can be even credentialed people who, you know, have views that are very polarizing, very extreme and not necessarily evidence based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It's uh, it's thorny, but yeah, I absolutely agree that you know not all knowledge needs the imprimatur of uh, like you know a peer-reviewed study or a university credential, but that does count for something too. Yeah, I think it counts for a lot, especially you know just in thinking about like how do we separate out these sort of other phenomena that are so unique or so so universal to humans, I think, of like, you know, the the placebo effect or the natural history of disease or all those sort of related things. You know, I think giving one individual's journey that they're sharing on social media, like more credence in some cases than scientific studies. You know, I, I know that I've definitely heard people say that they believe that kind of thing more because they think it's less influenced, it's less bought, it's less embedded with the pharma industry, the medical industry that they want nothing to do with, not realizing how individuals can also be influenced and pushed in certain directions and maybe not necessarily by a huge industry like that. Although in some cases, yes, if it's the mm-hmm. food industry paying you to say anti-diet stuff, which is just horrifying. But you know, it, it, it just all makes me think like we need to take everything we see online, especially on social media with a huge grain of salt and maybe not not base our life decisions around that, you know, which is so much easier said than done. And I know so many people lack access to a good healthcare team that could advise them in a better way and 
you know, there's all the issues around around that. But to whatever extent, I think it's possible for you if you can have more in-person support or like even virtual online support that's one-on-one versus like these public contexts of social media where, you know, the algorithms are really influencing and shaping what you see and what people say. I think that would be to the good. Absolutely. I mean, this is, I just think like sustained human contact. And again, not everyone can have it ever or right now, but especially around making really important intimate decisions about your body and your health and your mind. Like, you know, we were talking about narcissism early on. And I think sometimes like personal care, for lack of a better overarching term, can be sort of dismissed as just like a leisured pursuit. And of course, it's a luxury to think about the way you move your body and the way you nourish your body. But like, this stuff is really important, you know, and I think that we should not be shy about saying that and really encourage, um, you know, our, certainly our policymaker is to make create policies that make it more accessible to get good advice in this regard, but also people like, yeah, it's worth talking to a few people about the health decisions you make. It's probably worth getting out of your house and going to an appointment if you can. And I think that that can sometimes fall by the wayside. We're all busy and are constrained in various ways. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, so messy and tricky, as we've said in this yeah. this conversation many times, right? That there's so many systemic barriers to that as well. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, well, Natalia, I could talk to you forever about this stuff. Me and too. It's really been fun. Can you tell us about your book and where people can find it and learn more about you? Absolutely. So my book is Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. Um, it is out anywhere books are sold. So you can get it at that big retailer. I know you know, but also your independent booksellers or directly from the press at University of Chicago Press. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or any of the other platforms too. And if you're in New York, come take a class with me. I do speaking all over the country too. So um, you can find me on those platforms if you want to talk more about that. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Thank you. So that's our show. Thanks so much to Natalia Melman Petrozella for being here. And thanks to you for listening. If you like this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you take a moment to subscribe and also leave a rating or review of the podcast. You can just search for Rethinking Wellness with Christy Harrison wherever you listen to podcasts or hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this. Or go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to get new episodes delivered to your inbox every other week. If you have any questions for me about wellness and diet culture, you can send them in at christyharrison.com slash questions for a chance to have them answered on my newsletter or possibly even on this podcast at some point in the future. This episode was brought to you by my upcoming book, The Wellness Trap, which will be out on April 25th. You can learn more and pre-order now at christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap. And after you pre-order, you can upload your proof of purchase for a special bonus Q&A with me at christyharrison.com slash book bonus. Rethinking Wellness is executive produced and hosted by me, Christy Harrison. Mike Lalonde is our audio editor and sound engineer. Administrative support from Julianne Watasek and her team at A-Team Virtual. Album art by Tara Jacoby and theme song written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, I hope you're well, but not wellnessy well. Wellness-y well.